This is Let's Keep It Real with Sandy Joy Weston, your weekly dose of positivity with awesome stories and guests from all over the world. It's an opportunity to learn some great new things and expand your mind. We'll tackle topics from all areas of life, and as always with Sandy, the sky's the limit. Hello, hello, my Let's Keep It Real people. Okay, you know, I try to listen to all your requests and all my peeps out there that have kids going off to school. They're like, Sandy, bring somebody on. We need help. So we're going to get right to it. I brought in Nate, the survivor of eight adverse childhood experiences, prepares parents, so there you go, to rise above childhood trials and tribulations to help any child realize their hopes and dreams. Nate does so by sharing the life template, a backward design process enabling him to raise a multilingual son who left the country at 16 to chase a dream of playing professional soccer, receiving free education. All right, stop there. Free education valued at more than $1.5 million, earning admission to 27 of America's best universities, earned fully funded fellowships to seven of America's, oh my goodness, top graduate engineering programs, earning a PhD in electrical and computer engineering from Carnegie Mellon University. We never heard of that. Receiving MBA offers from four of America's leading business schools, including a full ride to NYU Stern School of Business and more. Well, 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 Nate, you've been busy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. All right. So let's get into it. Your word, one word that best describes your past 30 days and why'd you pick it? Grateful. 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 It's going to be my word every day. If you ask me 30 days from now, then it'll give me a second. Every day, that's it's a word. It's a word you focus on every day on gratitude. Absolutely. All right. So when I told my listeners and viewers you were coming on, I always say, you know, what questions do you want to ask Nate? Let's get right into it. And the biggest question I got over and over again. So we're going to go with the number one. Do you believe college is necessary for every kid? No, I do not believe college is necessary for every. And to succeed, you know, it was like, okay, because some of these parents, their kids do not want to go to college. They want to jump right into the working force. I will say that by by and large, if people look at, at the statistics of who leads the, these multinational corporations, these are people who are college educated. And I also would say the people who sit in the C-suites who help run those companies are also people who are college educated. So sure, there are that you can be, there are statistical anomalies all the time. But the question I would ask is, do you want to be a statistical anomaly or are you more interested in, in increasing your odds? Yeah, so I think what's going on, and I'm not saying it's a large percentage, mm-hmm. but some of the people I talk to, their kids think they're just throwing their money away because of how expensive college is. And especially those that may not be getting a lot of free education, they're thinking by the time I get done, is it really going to be worth all the money I spent? Agreed. So um, what, what, I, what I often find is this, when, when a person says uh, college is too expensive um, and it may not be worth it, then I think that the other part of it is what is the return on investment? If I'm going to major in 
I want to, I, there's no disrespect to any career, but if I wanted yeah, to be, yeah. become, I wanted to do social work and I was going to major in sociology, then I'm probably going to find that I could have probably done that social work for some state agency and I might have been able to do it without a college degree. And okay. so getting, so getting a college degree might not have been the best option. But if I want to be, if I want to get my PhD in sociology so that I then can work at a university and maybe work for some larger institution, then yeah, I'm going to need a college degree. Um, so I just, I don't think to say college degrees are not worthwhile is, is equal because it depends on what you're going to do, what you're going to get your college degree. My son's college degree is in engineering. Um, yeah. In electrical engineering. I don't think we want, um, I think we want people who have, who are, are experts in, in a particular area to have a college degree as opposed to saying, um, well, we don't mm. need a college degree to be an electrical engineer. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> 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 well, what do you do with the kid? I mean, you can't force them to go, right? What if the Correct. kid says, I don't want to go? I mean, and uh, we'll call him Billy Bob said, a kid has done great all through high school, great grades, very involved in school, but he's convinced he's going to have a startup business. I don't know how to change his mind. What should I do? And he thinks he's making a big mistake because he'd rather go into school and then pursue it. Um so can I backtrack a little bit? Because I think what happens with, with, with parents is this. America does this thing where we do fam- families a huge disservice. So we're in 2023. And if you ask someone, how do we raise children? People would say, there's no magic. So in 2023, we're still saying that there's no magic. So the first, very first thing we do wrong as a nation is that we don't start to think about what we want children to become before children come into existence. So if we were if we were thinking about, for example, Lamaze, if you and I were to if you and I were to uh, produce a child and you were you were pregnant. And I know today they say we're pregnant. But if you and I were going to produce a child and and I would say old school, Sandy's pregnant and we're going to have a child. What Sandy and I should be doing is figuring out what the landscape of the world might look like in 20 years and everything that we do from from that day that we find out should be geared towards getting that child to when that child is 18 or 20 to be best positioned to choose what I call like the buffet from life, to choose whatever opportunities they have, they want to have. As I, as you as you mentioned in the beginning, my son is 16, decided he did not want to, to go back to not only go to college, he didn't want to go back to high school for his senior year. Yeah. So, but because he was prepared that by the end of his senior, his junior year in high school, he had already earned 33 college credits and virtually completed all of his high school requirements. He was able to go do something that many kids can't do. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's because of the preparation. So I think that's where we have to start thinking about how we want to prepare our future citizens. Do we wait until they're high school students to then decide what they want to do with their life? Or are we starting the preparation much earlier? Yeah, I'm going to say most of us don't do that. I mean, not that we don't save for college. I, I mean, right. we do. Right. But I don't think we're thinking what's the landscape going to be in 18 or 20 years. Like, yeah. I know I didn't think of that. I mean, I thought about, you know, what am I going to do with this kid? He's got to do this. We got to do that. We got to do that. We're going to set him up for college. But I wasn't thinking that right. far down the road that way. Well, that's. But that's the again. That's it. I think that's one of the things the nation does a disservice, because everything we do in a, in this country is based on projections. 
I, I work by day in the financial services industry. We're always projecting where stocks are going. We're projecting where companies are going. We're looking yeah. at startups, what's going to be the next thing. We're looking at emerging markets. But when, when we're talking about parents and, and raising children in education, we're not making any projections. We just say, hey, well, you had a baby and maybe you took a Lamaze class and it teaches you how to uh, breathe and eat ice chips and rub on the, the spouse's back. But when the baby and you go home, you have no idea what you're doing and, and you have no idea what projections are going to look like. Someone might tell you what, what college will cost in, yes. in three yes. years, but that's it. No one's telling you, well, how do I pick a school so that the school that my child attends will have a curriculum that matches the school where I'd like my child to go? How do I pick a school that I want my child to attend in 18 years that has a more of a likelihood to allow my child to go to school for free because they have an overwhelming large endowment so my child can go there for free, even if I don't ever make enough money to, to do that? What kinds of steps should I, should I be making? But no one ever gives us instructions. Yeah, that would have been helpful, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking, I hope I don't screw this kid up. You know, you're like, you're right. Like, there is no handbook, and you're right. We still say the same. We still thing. say it, right? And and everything in your house has a handbook, but the people, which again makes no sense to me. There, there is nothing you can get today that doesn't have a handbook. Um, whatever you order has a handbook, from a air mattress to a COVID test to um, uh, air fryer. Everything has a man, but the people that come home with you. Have no men. That's messed up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's back up because yep. I need to know a little bit more about this. What does it mean, the survivor? It said eight ACEs, which is adverse mm-hmm. childhood experiences. Please tell me more. Sure. And I think in 1994, the Centers for Disease Control conducted a study with. Kaiser Permanente, a hospital in San Francisco. They were trying to find out why certain students were struggling in school. Historically, folks would would blame a child's uh, lack of academic performance, maybe on a child not caring, maybe on parenting, and no one ever thought, but maybe there's some things going on in the child's life, sort of like someone who goes off to war and comes back with post-traumatic stress disorder. And they found that there were 10 things that would prevent a child from doing well in school. And those things were called adverse childhood experiences. Oh, okay. What they later found was that not only would those things prevent you from doing well in school, that they could have such a drastic effect on your your health and the rest of your life. So so that I believe, I want to say 60% of Americans have at least one ACE. And about 17% of Americans have four or more. And if you have four or more, the projections for your life essentially are very, are very uh, gloomy. Um, the expectation <laughs> that you, you, won't, you won't do well in school, you have a hard time keeping a job, you'll probably yeah. be abusive to someone else. You might be involved with crime, you might be involved with drugs and alcohol, uh, abuse those things, et cetera. So I... The, of the eight to 10 things that they list, of the 10 things they list as a first child experience, I am a survivor. And when did you realize that? Like what year you were like, oh my goodness. So, you know, when things happen to you, you just, it's just your life and you don't think any, it's like, just, oh, it's right. just my life, right? So yeah, that's just, who I am, man. Right. But when my wife, who she's a survivor of seven of the 10 and collectively we have nine of the 10. So when we learn 
that we were going to be parents. At, at that point, that's when we said, you know, we need to figure out how not to to replicate, duplicate, or perpetrate mm. any of the things that our parents did on this child. So it wouldn't have been until 1994, 95, when I started to understand uh, the trauma in the way that I understood. Okay. So in that moment, you're like, okay, we need to reverse this. What did you do? Where'd you go? What help did you seek? So, so <laughs> there was no one to go to because everyone said there's no manual. Right. So, so that's what I, I need I, to where, know. Where I went, honestly, I went to a movie with her. And on June 24th, I believe, of 1994, it was a Friday night. I believe that's the correct day. I went to go see The Lion King. Oh. And, when I, and when I watched Mufasa and Simba and Sarabi, I just I, I realized that I could then be a parent because I didn't want to be a parent. I, I was like, I don't want to be a parent. And when I saw them, I saw an ability to how to, how you might be able to create a village for a child, um, how to name a child in such a way, the requirements that a father should have with their son um, or a daughter, because I didn't know we were happy. Um, yeah, so yeah. I saw a whole lot of I saw a whole lot of potential that I never even saw in my house for what what was possible. And then I had the good, good fortune of working for McMillan, uh, McMillan McGraw-Hill School Publishing. And they, in my last day there when I was in law school, they gave me a bunch of books. And they gave me all these books. And, and oddly enough, a number were on, on early childhood development. And I was like, why, why did you give me these books? At the time, I, well, my wife and I are not talking about having these children. Yeah, they gave me yeah. books. They gave me language tapes. They gave me all this stuff. And so The Lion King, those books, and being in law school and being at the tail end of my uh, law school journey and realizing that I didn't have a job and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought, well, what would have made my life different? And I thought, well, if I could have gone to someplace like Harvard or Yale or Stanford and I finished law school there, I wouldn't, it wouldn't matter where I ranked because I would have been a Harvard law graduate. And that's what people would have introduced me as first before I came on today. You just said, hey, we have Harvard law graduate, Nate Turner, right? And Absolutely. so- Absolutely. So I said, well, cool. Well, maybe that's the ticket. So we wrote Harvard for an application and we used the application from Harvard to create this template for his life. That's incredible. And the fact that you and your wife are on the same page, you know, is amazing. Well, I would say that I married a woman who was kind enough to <laughs> to um, play along with my lunacy. Uh, oh, right. So oh, I like that. I like that. The indulgement. I'm like, okay, but I think we should try this. Okay. I said, I, you know, we can, he can be done in high school at 14. And she was like, no, we're not, I don't think so. But today, today she would agree with that it could have happened. And it might would have been, well, there's no point of talking about what could have been, but it would have been interesting to know because at 14, then if he had wanted to leave the country, yeah, he, yeah, he could have gone to Brazil and Spent yeah. four years there playing soccer, and if it didn't work out, he could have come back and been right with his high school, regular high school graduate class. Yeah. So, did you have any family support from either side when raising your son? Um. Yeah. My my mom. Uh, my mom's been supportive. My sister was quite supportive. Um. I, my son never had a relationship with either one of his grandfathers, uh, but. When you say family, what I've learned that is that I'm less concerned with DNA and more concerned with functionality. Mm -hmm. So we have lots of people who are part of his village who 
um, one, like one of the interesting things, Sandy, before we knew if we were having a boy or a girl, um, we, we wrote down the names that we thought we'd like, and we had decided that we were going to wait for eight days to name the child. So following some old ancient traditions where you bring yeah, the baby yeah. home, you watch the baby's personality, but we sent the names to the people who we thought were going to be a part of this village. And we asked them in the letter, we said, we want you to come by and visit, visit the baby. And, and when, when you visit the baby, reflect on these names and tell us who you think the baby is. Because we want you to be a part of the naming process. Because we believe that if you're part of the naming process, then you'll feel some ownership to make sure that the child becomes whatever it is you think that their name should, should suggest. And what so happened? We, so we named them on the eighth day. And I, you know, we, had, we had an idea what we thought we were going to name them. But um, we came home from the hospital. And the hospital original birth certificate says baby boy Turner. And, uh, and my mother was like, you can't bring a baby home with no name. I said, yeah, 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 we can. And so we did. And on the eighth day, we named them Naeem, Naeem Kahari Turner-Bandelli. I initially wanted to throw away my my uh, my last name, and I wanted to give him a different last name. My mother convinced me not to do it. So his name wait is a minute, name. Wait a minute. <laughs> you just think she might. Hope the break, Snake. <laughs> Why did you want to use Turner? So. Uh, um, at the time, my, my thinking was that Turner, the origin of Turner is, is, yeah. is a name from slavery. And my name is, is Nate Turner. And for so long, people would call me and thought of me of, of Nat Turner. If you're familiar with the historical figure, Nat Turner. Yeah. Started a revolution and killed a bunch of people. And so um, either people would be around me and be very comfortable about the name <laughs> Nat Turner, or people would be, be uncomfortable. And so I'm like, well, it's probably not the name of of the people who, when they came here and put on the slave ship, I don't know what that name is. But now I get a chance to pick whatever name I want to for my child. So I want to pick a name that doesn't have any vestiges of slavery attached to it. My mother said, now you don't do that because then nobody will be able to connect with you. Your ancestors won't be able to connect with you who, who do have the last name. Steve. And it is your dad's name. Don't, like, don't be so abrasive. So she was right. So I did. So we yeah. kept in his name is Naeem, which is, is Arabic, which means benevolent, and Kahari, just Swahili, means king. Mm. And Turner, which, of course, I'd say was a slave name. But there, I'm not sure if it's if it's Eastern European, um, if it has to do with people who used to turn flips, um, or um, I'm not quite sure about the derivation. I've seen a, a bunch of different explanations or narratives about what the name comes from but then his last name part of his last name is bandeli which which is yoruba which is nigerian i took the uh, ancestor.com test not long ago and found out that much of my dna was from nigeria so um and that and it, it means um born away from home so his full name and he's a benevolent king despite being born from slavery you know I know it's a little late for me, but you make me want to have another kid so I can do that. That would be awesome, you know, to have everybody over. You know, we did wait to name our son, too, but only three days in the hospital. But it would, I can see if I came over yeah, and I was a part of that, I would feel really special. Yeah. And, and so everybody gets to hold him accountable to to the name that he had. So uh, that's that, that part is worked out. I love it. All right. So you have a list here of some mm -hmm. questions we can go over and things 
that, you know, may not be so, <laughs> what can I say? We might want to just throw away some of the things that we've been doing. And one of the things that came up over and over again, <laughs> which I was cracking up, what does he mean, don't know your why? What is he talking about? <laughs> Because I remember you saying something like, we got to get rid of the commercialized thing, saying such as know your why. So I think it's interesting. Simon Sinek gave this really wonderful TED speech some years ago and said, great leaders begin with why. And then everybody, and then and, and, and we say in our, in our community, everybody named Mama ran off with this. Everybody has to know their why. Know your why, man. Right. And so we took, a conversation that was about leadership and why, and turn it into a conversation about everybody needing a why, whether or not we're leading or we're following. And I just feel like why is a transitory question. There are there are other interrogatory questions to ask. There's the who, there's the what, there's the where, there's the when, there's the why, and there's the how. And we act as though what's most important is knowing your why. So Sandy, why do I work? Well, when I was a nine-year-old and my father told me that he wasn't buying me a 10-speed bike for my 10th birthday, I worked because I wanted a 10-speed bike. Why did I work when I was in high school? Well, because I wanted to have clothes to wear and be able to pay for things to go to school activities. Why did I work in college? Because I needed to pay for my, for my, uh, my, my tuition. Right? Why do I work now? It's different. So I feel like your whys are transitory. Your whys change. But what doesn't change or what shouldn't change is who. Like, who do you want to be when your time on this planet is up? And I feel like we don't spend enough time asking that question. Who am I? And when I can no longer tell Sandy who I am. And Sandy reads my obituary. Who will it say I was? If Sandy comes to my funeral and has an opportunity to speak, who will Sandy eulogize me to be? Mm. If the last when the last words are written on my urn or my tomb, wherever they appear, who would those words say that I was? Because those words are going to live with me forever. Why is not? Who is? So I'm I'm just not a fan of, of why. But much I'm much more interested in us knowing who we are. And I feel like too few people know who we are. So that's you know, I've never quite thought of it that way, but now that you're making me think about it, I think. I interpreted the why differently. I thought of it in a roundabout way in why am I doing this? Like, Mm -hmm. why do I want to do it? What am I passionate about? What's my mission? So I think I, I didn't even think why, like I'm doing this because I keep thinking, what do how do I want to impact the world? So you're right. It's not the same thing as, why I'm doing it. But why do you want to impact the world is about who. Yeah. Because the because and you're impacting the world, you're impacting people, I'm assuming it's people. Yes. Or if they're not, maybe you want to impact animals. But yeah. they're still they're still not a bad gig. Right, right, right. <laughs> they're still they're not they're not why. And I just I know like a lot of guys that do motivational guys and gals, a lot of people who do motivational speaking, they always talk about why and they I don't want to say they it's bastardized an appropriate word, but they bastardize it such that why is always about money. why is about a grind, why is about wealth and mm-hmm. achieving wealth and fame and fortune. And I just feel like that's misguided. When you when we, you when someone passes, and I, in my prior life, I 
had a small t- time when I spent in the pulpit. And so I, you know, I was responsible for um, administering someone's last rites or being at a, fu- at a funeral. What I never saw, and I've written several obituaries for folks, I, I never see us talking about why some. I always read who, who's their, who's their survived by, or who predeceased them. So there is no why in their obituary. It's only who. And I feel like if that's the end goal, then why aren't we talking about that each and every day? I'm going to have to think about that. But I do get it. I think for me, it's more semantics because I always do wake up each day. And my my main mission, even since I've been a kid, is spread pure joy. I, I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. I didn't know when. I just knew that's how I was what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And the vehicle has changed mm-hmm. on how I'm going to spread joy. But it's always what I wake up every day. Like, you know, you're saying grateful, not that I'm not grateful, but it's like, okay, how am I going to spread joy today? Right. And I ask for guidance on that. And so it's my mission. And then when you say live each day with purpose and urgency, mm-hmm. to me, I think of I'm going to live in the most bright light I possibly can today. I'm mm-hmm. going to make the most of every day, and how can I serve? So, when you think of living each day with purpose and urgency, what do you think of? The, very, very much the same thing. I think that so. The other part of who is that, that I ask myself this question: um, When your time is up, who you have helped, who you have served, and who would know their life matters because they spend time. So that's 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 what I'm trying to do every day with urgency and purpose. Every day is about helping, serving, and making sure others know that they're not. So you've worked with a lot of people, schools, corporations, families. Mm-hmm. How many people do you think, a percentage, just an average, <laughs> wake up and feel that way every day? Not a lot. Not, I would say it's a very small percentage. I, I don't know. You know, I can tell you. Exactly. Yeah. 20%, but I'd say a small percentage. I'd say if the if Pareto's principle is correct and, you know, uh, you get 80% of your results from 20% of the people, I'm gonna step up, I'll go with 20% of us. I think it's probably, it's probably right. It's probably right. And here's the deal. I know there's a lot of well-meaning people that really believe what you're saying, mm-hmm. but somehow they wake up every morning and before they know it, the day's gone by and they haven't stayed focused on living each day with purpose and urgency. So what is it that you do? Do you have a ritual every day that you do to remind yourself? I do. I have several of them. All right, so, we're listening. You wake up so, and then what, Nate? The very first thing I do when I wake up is not talk to you. I, I do my best not to. So it can be rude, you know, being married to someone and someone doesn't want to talk to you in the morning. But but generally, generally, um, she, she understands that now. I wake up and I... I wait, I just sit quietly to receive something to say. And then I take the thing that I say and I write to myself about the life that I want to live, which may not be the life that I live. Every so day. I do, every day. I do what's called journaling form. In the first 20 minutes of each day, and I and I should have thought about it, I should have sent it to you. I, I wrote a book um, about that. Um, and each what's day. What's it called? What's the book called? Journey Forward. Um, 
I can't reach it now. But uh, doesn't matter. Go get it. We don't care. You could go to the bathroom. We don't care. Right. So, and so, can you see it? Because I don't have myself on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, how to use journaling to envision and manifest the life you always want? So, each day, I I write my life the way I would like it, to, as opposed to how. And I've been doing that now for about the last five. Years. Can you give us just a little short, like, because I know people are going to say to me that mm -hmm. a lot of people need examples, especially if they never journaled before. Okay. Um, I just you want to read something from one of the chapters? Is that what you? What you're saying or even like when you said you write how you want your life to be give us an example of what you do you wake up and you say dear so i said good day journal who could have imagined that journaling forward would be ubiquitous in the lives of people across america when you started sharing your daily journal many people thought it odd to write about experiences you have not lived others i am sure while attempting to spare your feelings thought you were merely weird why would anyone be so comfortable freely sharing their innermost thoughts and feelings? Who were you is another common question I suspect was being proposed to imagine living the life you want to live in your mind first. Check out this fool, Nate Turner, I believe was a prevailing thought. Who is he to think he has the power to change how he feels each day? Who is he to expect he can control the direction of his life by writing down imagined life experiences as if they are happy, uh, the happenings of the life he lives? But now, here we are. We are. Dr. Wilson and I published his journal. Dr. Wilson did the hard part. She asked insightful questions. Dr. Wilson provided context for people to become the best version of themselves when using the journal. Not only did she do the hard stuff, like give readers exercise to discover who they were and who they most wanted to be, but she did so while at the same time making me look good. So, I mean, I could continue, but that's like- Oh, I love that. I love that. So, so when you write down- every day mm -hmm. how you want your life to look yeah are you just going for the day the week the month like how far are you going out <laughs> so it depends on what i what i wake up with so sometimes i wake up and um it's something really fun like I, there's an entry very f favorite entry of mine where i talk about the people in my life who've been very helpful to me and i gather them all up and we fly to las vegas on a private plane and we have like a party in vegas and Got what it's what I call it, but and then some days it's just me talking to my. I'm sitting on the beach and yeah. just by myself, and you know, counting the grains of sand and showing gratitude and appreciation for for being here and and being what it is that I want to be in the future. But every day it depends on what I receive. Today I wrote about living on borrowed time. Uh, the other day I wrote that. Life is a war of attrition. It's a battle between the you who believes that it can do everything and the you who's like glum and thinks, you know, nothing will ever go. And each day there's that war that takes place. So it just, it just depends. Yeah. So, okay. I, well, I'm big into journaling, they know. But when you do the forward mm -hmm. journal, and yep. you said, like you said, every day is different. Yep. Do you also do daily journaling? of what you want to do that day or do you always is it always forward journaling no it's always forward i don't i don't um what i what i try not to do so so the science behind it is that we have 60 70,000 thoughts every day mm -hmm. um 90 or more of those thoughts are the same thoughts we had yesterday and so yeah. the only way to and I, and I think i heard you mention something about uh, something you do in the first one or two minutes a day yeah yeah um but in order, 
at least for me, for me not to be overwhelmed by what happened yesterday, the best thing I can do is focus on where it is now. I see life like a, uh, a GPS. I'm not, if, I, if, I, if you tell me where you are, I'm yeah. less concerned about where I am. I'm more concerned about where the destination is, where, how to get to where you are. So my focus is on how to get to where it is that I want to be, not so much about where I'm currently staying. So I think I do a combination. Like I wake up and every day I pick a different word. I mean, my overall word is joy, but I always pick a different word on how I want to show up the day, whether it's love, peace, and it depends on what I have going on the day, right? Come down, write the word, and then I have other things I write. Some of it is scribble scrabble, and I just (laughs) get out some thoughts and then put a big S through it, you know, that's spinning around in my head that doesn't serve me well, so I can move forward. But I also do have forward journaling that if I'm picturing myself on a certain keynote stage, if mm-hmm. I'm doing a performance, I'll already say, wasn't it so fun tonight? Yeah. That it, da, 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 da. But it's about what's going to happen later that night. Okay. In That's addition fair. to some big things That's fair. Yeah. that I want to happen. That's fair. But I still do a lot of scribble scrabbling because I want to be aware of what thoughts are going on in there so I can shift them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. That's that's fair. I've I've done that where there's something coming up and I want it to go a particular way. And yeah. so I just start to tell myself that it's going to go the way that I think yeah. it's going to go. And the only yeah. way that, so I, I may journal about that. You, Some of that is about manifesting because I've done that where yeah. I'll have an event. I had an event once, was invited to speak somewhere and they asked me to be a, one of the breakout speakers. And fine. And I'm happy to go. Like, you got to help. You got to serve. Make sure people know their life matters. You go. But then when I'm in the room, I was like, man, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm still on the main stage. It's ridiculous. Ah. So, so when the event was over, that was my journal. I wrote the next morning. That next morning, it was still bothering me so much in my spirit that that's what I wrote. Well, unbeknownst to me, the organization agreed. And two days later, I got a notification that they wanted me, they would wanted to know if I would be interested in being their keynote speaker for the following year. So I was like, okay, all right. So yeah, this stuff like the stuff like that, you know, yeah. I once wrote, I was gonna just pick up out of nowhere and just fly to Hawaii. And I got invited to speak somewhere in LA and while I was in LA, it was during the pandemic, and I looked and checked the flights to Hawaii were hundred dollars from LA to Hawaii. I was like, well. Check off two things at once. I said I want to speak in front of ten thousand people. Check. I said I wanted to go to Hawaii. Check. So, but that's that's the it's it's been working for me. So that's that's what I continue. To do. I I I totally agree. I totally agree. And by writing it down, it even makes it more come to life. You know, absolutely. Versus just thinking about. It. I mean. I do have a whole dance routine that I do with it. You should see me. I, I write it down there and then I'm like dancing around like I'm up on stage. Like it's already happening. That's and that good. works for me. Like That's I get good. really into it. Like I feel it. But yeah. I also, yeah, make sure I write it. Well, All I right. mean, there's, there's old there's that really old scripture says a person thinketh in their heart. So are they. Yeah. And so if you're dancing, dancing is the thing you do with your heart. Yeah. I don't think you think about dancing. Dancing no. is a heart. Right? It's a heart. If you watch me, you know I'm not thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so your heart, your heart is telling us what what Sandy wants. So I think that's yeah, good. yeah. 
Okay, so the parents out there, they got a bunch of questions. We're not going to get to all of them, but you can reach out to Nate, I'm sure. So let's just attack a few of them. You ready? Okay. Okay. I think. And you, we, we did touch on a little bit of it, but I want to really dive into it. Okay. Okay. So some of them saw that the most important thing you could do is write to your child. Mm -hmm. What if your child's 12? Should you just start now? Yes. Simple answer. Yes. There's no, there's, there's no time is too late. And since none of us know when our time is up, you should write to them. In fact, I would tell any parent, because um, today we have all kinds of tools. So I was writing to my son because I didn't have the tools like uh, YouTube and a camera. But I think uh -huh. one of the best things you could do, you can even leave a video record. You could do that often. I mean, I still write to my son today. In many ways, when I write to Good Day Journal, the journal some days is my son. I'm actually writing to him. I mean, I'm leaving lessons to him about how to move forward in his own life. Okay. So for those of you who may not know what you do on a daily basis, is it every single day you write to your child or once a week? How often? So if you're writing to your child, I think you write to your child whenever you want to write to your child. So, the, so I'm here with you because I wrote letters to my child. I, I, when my son was two, he walked to the mailbox with me. He asked me for mail. I go through this long diatribe about how there's nothing good in the mailbox, but he insists on getting mail. And long story short, I start writing. Wow. I start writing gift, uh, green cards and postcards. And then it, it, it evolved because what happened is there was so much I, I wanted to say that just couldn't fit on those, on those cards. So I just start writing. And what I realized is that I shouldn't write him as a two. I should write him as if he was 22. I shouldn't write him when he was five. I shouldn't write him as if he was five. I should write him if he, if he was 35. Because I realized that the value, the real value of the le letters would be what I would say and how they would, how they would be useful to him over the long term of his life. Not just how he would find value to him as a five-year-old. So the five-year-old could say, hey, daddy, I got mail. Yes, son, you got mail. I know. I wrote you. <laughs> but, but at 25, he can say, Dad, I was somewhere and I reread this letter you wrote to me about dreams. Right? Okay. How much difference do So I think most of us are not going to leave children wealth. We're not going to leave children fame or fortune, but we can leave them a legacy through the world. I love that idea. <laughs> I love it. Again, I'm going to have to have. I mean, I do write stuff, but not like that. You know, I think I think it's awesome. But but in addition, what you said, you can also do things. On video, there's lots of different ways. You don't have Absolutely. to just, yeah. So, so Sandy, I lost my father. He and I were not close. But my father passed on Mother's Day of, of 2018. Um, I don't know what my father's voice sounds like anymore. I have no idea. Mm. I, I would, some days I think about my father and despite the our, our tumultuous relationship, mm. I now am mature enough to see my father different. There's yeah. this thing in psychology called narrative psychology, expressive processing, where you, as the author of your own story, get to narrate it the way you want to. I would like to hear my father's voice in this, but I, I don't, I can't hear my father's voice because I don't have any recordings of my father. I would like to read some words from my father to tell me something. I, I don't have any words from my mm -hmm. father. And so if I'm going to do better than my father, then I have to give my child at least that. So my my son has has you know there's a book called Raising Superman that are a collection of letters that I wrote him. He said publish them, so we published. 
but he, he he can find me anywhere in the universe. He could Google Nathaniel Turner and find all kinds of stuff and find his father probably in every interview he's ever had saying something that's stolen the value of his and and I may I may never be famous or rich or you know wealthy or privileged, but my my child will be able to Google his dad and say, you know, today I want to hear from my father. And he could actually hear from his father. And the journals that I do every day now are also audio versions. So January 1, we'll, they'll be available oh. to all of the podcast channels. Yeah, and he'll be able to hear his dad talk about him. Right. Now, you may have mentioned it, but how old is your son now? He's 28. And where does he live? He lives in New Jersey. Uh, he's uh, at NYU. So he takes the, whatever, the subway train. Yeah. No, and I don't even know where you live. Where do you live? I live outside of Indianapolis in a small town called Science. Oh, I was just there a few years ago. Not where you are, but in Indianapolis. And I grew up in New Jersey, and I live in the suburbs of Philly. Okay. So it's not now. Yeah, not far at all. So anyhow, so you're you live in outskirts of Indianapolis. Correct. He's in New Jersey right now. You said he's at NYU. I just want to make sure. He's at NYU now. Yep. Yeah. So he finished he Carnegie in the, in, in the fall. I'm sorry, in May of 2023 and enrolled at NYU September. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like besides having this whole plan, when you talk about being a parent, you really enjoyed it. You had a lot of fun with it. Best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, you can see it all over your face. Like, you know, besides, okay, we should have a handbook. This is how you do it. You can see you enjoyed so yeah. much of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I know it's in The Lion King, and it is no joke. There, there's a scene in The Lion King, and, and, the, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna guess you've seen it because yeah, oh yes, yeah. But there's a scene in The Lion King, and and Simba goes off to the elephant graveyard. He and Nala and Mufasa has to go and fight for him and bring him back. He's a trope man. Gives him this long talk about it. Dad, I didn't think he was scared of anything. Yes, I was scared that something happened to you, my son. Dad, we're always packed. And when he said that, when Simba said to Mufasa, Dad, we're always packed. I, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good. That's exactly what I want. I want to have a relationship with a child who, no matter what age they are, no matter what kind of experiences we have, mm. good or bad, he can always turn to me and say, and know that we're all And that's my relationship with myself. So I, I can do nothing but smile because that's my dad. So we have a few parents here that were saying how close they were. They had only one child. And it was, although they were really happy, it was gut-wrenching when their kids went off to college and moved like not just an hour away. Right. It, it was like you, they took their heart, although they were really, really happy for them. And they want to know, did you feel the same thing? Well, my son went 7,000 miles away at 16. Oh, he was close. Yeah. <laughs> so he went to, he went to, he went to Porto Feliz, Brazil. So, um, yeah, it was heart-wrenching, but it also was, it was it was it was necessary. So so you have to ask yourself, is this about me or is this about the child? 
he said, and he'd been raised by someone who told him, you can, you can do anything you want to do, right? follow your, your dreams, yada, yada, yada. And he says, hey, hey, man, I've done everything you all have asked me to do. I've done everything I needed to do. But I got this big dream, and I can't wait until I'm old enough. You know, people think I'm old enough to leave the country. I need to yeah, leave right Yeah, yeah. So you have to say, okay, well, i got to be consistent. So he, got, he has to go. Now, yeah, it's, di- it's difficult, but it was the best thing, one of the best experiences. I, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing today. Had to yeah. And did you go visit? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, yes. I went, I, went, I went a number of times. Um, I went, he wanted to go when he when we first went because he had to go trial for a few clubs. We went, and that's when I knew, and I told my wife, we have to go. Because we'd never seen him play with that kind of joy ever. I mean, he'd been playing yeah. soccer since he was four. And so for 12 years, I'd never seen him play with that much happiness. So I'm like, yo, he has to go. Whatever it takes us to figure it out. Uh, whatever we got to get over. We got to get over. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I did go visit. I went to visit a number of times. And he also had a, a trials in Germany. So we went to Germany. So yeah, he, he was quite busy in. But it was his dream, so my job was yeah. just to help to support his dream. So I know we're running out of time here, but I just want to touch on it a little because you talk about being able to go to school without having a background, a family, money, anything in your favor, robbing, cheating, you know, figure like it's possible. So let's address that. Okay, so first of all, I'm a I'm a person who went to college whose family didn't have anything. Now the times were very different, but my high school guidance counselor at the end of my telling end of my sophomore year told me the best that I could hope to do was join the military. He was not telling me I could be Richard Gear and I could be an officer general. Yeah, he was yeah. Saying, no, do the best you can hope to do is enlist and hope that somebody. Uh, what I didn't want was to have a child be subjected to that same level of uh, doubt that level mm-hmm. of scrutiny. Yeah. And so that's why having an idea of where I wanted my child to go from the beginning was helpful. So here's what I mean. If you pick an institution, so we pick Harvard. Well, I only pick Harvard because I was in law school and Harvard had a great had a great law school and I figured if I could have gone there in my life. Okay. Well, Nate, if you, why aren't you at Harvard? Why are you at Valparaiso? Well, you're at Valparaiso because in undergrad, you weren't preparing to go to Harvard. Okay, great. So why weren't you preparing in undergrad? Well, because in high school, you weren't being prepared to attend an undergrad that then got people to Harvard Law School. Okay, so then why weren't you prepared in high school? Well, because the school system that you attended didn't prepare students by and large to be able to attend those kind of institutions. Okay, so if, if I then take it back to the beginning, then Nate, what can you do now so that you can mitigate those factors that keep you? So before our child was home, like I said, we had already decided that Harvard said they wanted students who were, we, today we call it intellectually ambitious, uh, globally and culturally competent, and humanitarian driven. So those would be the three um, foundations for which his, mm. his childhood would be developed. So when you bring a baby home, well, if the if the goal is to get the baby to Harvard, well, once one of the things you need to make sure you can get a baby to do as soon as possible, read. You need to get the baby to read and do math as soon as possible. 
Because the sooner I can get a baby to read, baby can no longer be learning to read. A baby can read to learn. So that was the object. I found a guy named Glenn Dolan, who was actually from Philadelphia, who runs, mm. run, who is deceased now, but his daughter still runs the institute. I want to say it's the Institute for the uh, Achievement of Advanced Human Potential or something like that. I'll, I can send you the exact name, but his name is Glenn Doman for certain. Mr. Doman was, was teaching parents with children with brain injuries to be able to read and do sophisticated math problems by 18 months. So I'm like, okay, we don't have a child with brain injury. And the gynecologist has said nothing about any problems with our child, any kind of birth defect. So yeah. we need to be figuring out right now. And oh, by the way, guess what? I got all these books. I got all these books that these people sent me home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe maybe some answers are in these books. And so one of the things he said, say, take big picture books, as large as you can, and show it to an infant. And let the baby lay on their back and say what everything that's on the page. So narrate the whole entire page for, for the baby. Talk about the colors, et cetera, what animals you see if they're animals, fire engine, you know, spell out red, et cetera. Well, we did all those kind of things in two months. First two months after our child was here, nine was here, he spoke his first words. And then in 10 and a half months, 11 months, he's speaking the full sentence. At one, wow. he had his own computer. Now, did we, is he a Mensa? No. Is he anything, any, is different from any other child? No. But what was different? was those yeah. foundational moments. And so when all of the, when parents today are looking at, at children at college, most parents are still talking about what kids are doing in high school. And, and my experience is not that it's too late, but you've made the odds increasingly more difficult if you're waiting until high school. Mm. Because as early as the third grade, there are standardized tests that children are taking that could tell you Right as a third grader, what college or university your child's going to be? There are. Yeah. There, you, a, yeah. You know what? A, I, go ahead. I'm sorry, Nick. Go I'll ahead. Just say, I just quickly, there's a test called the NWEA assessment, Northwest Educational Assessment. It's given three times a year. It's probably given in, given in I don't know, 70% of the school districts across the, the nation. It, it has a score, gives you a, a reading score, a math score, um, reading, writing. I think it's reading, writing, math. But it gives you a score and there's a college explorer tool that goes with it and it'll correlate what college or university those scores equate to. So if you want your child to go to Harvard and your the reading score is 125 for third graders, mm. if you're going to attend Harvard and your child is reading at 113, you know that there's work to do right now yeah. in third grade. But yeah. most often parents have no idea because when they get the test, all the schools are telling them is that, well, your child, here's how your child compares to the other kids in the school. Yeah. Here's how your child compares to other school, kids in, in the district. And maybe here's how your children compare against other children in the state. Well, that's great. But Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley, et cetera, are all international schools. They're drawing from the best students around the Absolutely. world. We need to know how we compare with students across the world. You know, we we live in a really nice school district and there's so many kids that come here international to go to our elementary school, middle school, high school. And they look at us, I remember thinking, you're just flying blind because they start 
really young doing like exactly what you said. And you said at the beginning here in the U.S., other countries, there are many others that don't do that. They're doing exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. There are um, every every year, every four years, there's the national piece, international pieces. So it's the program for international scholastic assessment. It's the pieces given by the OECD, the Organization for Education and Cooperative Development. Every four years, they test 15-year-olds around the globe to see how well 15-year-olds are prepared. And by and large, American students in math and science are always in the 30s. Mm. We spend the first or second most for education anywhere in the globe. And our children are, are somewhere being prepared equal to Chile and Rwanda. Why is that, Nate? <laughs> well, it's because parents are unaware, and we've been we've been we've been tricked into outsourcing all our parental responsibilities to somebody else. So we don't really know what's going on. I, I hear parents all the time: "My child's really smart." I'm like, "Yeah, I, I'm. I don't question your child's yeah yeah intelligence. I don't question. I just question whether or not your child's been in a position to be prepared and make use of all the intelligence they have. In most cases, unfortunately." They're not. Every year, there's the NAEP, the National Assessment for Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card. Each year that comes out, and it shows, like, by and large, like, nine out of ten American students are not proficient in reading, writing, math, and science. Nine out of ten. So, like, every year we see the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, we blamed it on the pandemic. They know that the educational outcomes were down. We blamed it on the pandemic. No. That's not, that's not really the truth. Our, our system is broken. And uh, if we're waiting to kids get to be six to learn to read, and you've got a child at two that can read, and has spent four years reading all kinds of stuff, and you're waiting to six to learn to count, and another kid comes to school that's doing, you know, multiplication mm. and division. Yeah. You got a problem. Nate. I could talk to you forever, but we got to wrap up. I I thank you so much. I feel like this has really opened a lot of people's eyes. But if they do have more questions, how can they find you? Um, easiest place is NathanielAturner.com. N-N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L-A-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. My let's keep it real people. Come on. You know so many people that you're going to want to share this interview with. And Nate and I would really appreciate it. You know what I'm going to say. Until next time. Thank you, Nate. And toodles. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share and subscribe if you enjoyed the show. And remember, keep spreading the positive.